The In Conversation podcast series with author Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. podcast. Please like the podcast, podcast. and subscribe podcast. to this channel. Podcast. Thank you. Have you experienced several failed relationships or been through a divorce? How can you avoid making the same mistakes again? How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes is out now. Hi, my name is Nigel Beckles. My new book is packed with practical and common sense strategies that you can use to make better relationship choices. Now you can discover the dangerous myths about love. If your relationship expectations are realistic, why you could be falling in love for all the wrong reasons. How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes. It's a book that could change your life. Available from Amazon.co.uk. Kindle version also available. When the mood is right, a poetry journey and mood swings by Queen P. Available on Amazon and all good bookstores. The Royal Affair by Queen P. Dim the lights, sit back, relax, and breathe. You have entered into the Royal Affair. Queen P. Poetry Podcasts. Available now, 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 now. The Royal Affair. Get ready for takeoff. Welcome back to my In Conversation podcast series. My guest for this episode is a civil rights and Jim Crow era expert, American Elliot Robinson. Hi, Elliot. Welcome to my In Conversation podcast series. How are you? I'm doing fine. And yourself? I'm very well, thank you. So, Elliot, where are you residing at the moment? I currently live in Atlanta, Georgia. And how is it there? It's well. It's well. Um, you know, it's the South. And I often would tell people within most cities, but especially in the South, your major cities are very different than the rest of the state. And so Atlanta is is very urban, somewhat progressive, busy. But once you go about 30 minutes outside of Atlanta, you are definitely in the South. Well, I understand you attended Howard University School of Law. Which areas of law did you study? Uh, when I was at Howard, I did IP, intellectual property, and also did some sports law. When I graduated, I interned at the NFL Players Association. I was really interested in sports law at the time. And then from there, I kind of used my business background. I was a marketing major in undergrad and decided to do trademark copyright law. So how did you become interested in Black history? In undergrad, I went to a school, State University of New York at New Paltz, which is in upstate New York in between Albany and New York City. And my minor was actually Black Studies. I almost had a major in it. And so I was always always had interest um, in Black Studies. Both my parents are from South Carolina. And so I grew up every summer going to visit my grandparents, aunts and uncles um, in South Carolina. So I think in a lot of ways I had a unique, not a unique experience, but an experience that allowed me to have a, in that I could be, have the urban setting of New York City, which is where I grew up. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, but then in the summer, be able to go down to South Carolina and see life in a whole different way. And so that was planted into, into me at a very young age. And then once I got into undergrad, studied it some more and it's always been there, but I would say that it got dormant over time. Um, and it really didn't have an opportunity to rebloom, as it were, until I went to seminary. I went to seminary at Candler, at Emory's Candler School of Theology. And one of the courses that I took was cultural memory. And in that course, it was an opportunity for us to remember something cultural. So remember 
experiences remember the past. And one of the projects that we had was you had to interview someone about a particular time period in their life. And so it could have been a, a traditional interview, could have been in person. At the time, this is pre-COVID. This is back in 2016. And so you had a variety of ways. And so for me, it was an opportunity for me to sort of revisit this desire that I had to, to go deeper within Black history. Um, and let me kind of take a step back. In, in between the time that I was in law school and then the time of seminary, uh, it was quite a few years. I graduated from law school in 1994. I didn't get to seminary until 2013. In that in-between phase, I had an uncle who has since passed. He lived in Washington, D.C. And sometimes we would ride back and forth from D.C. to New York and then back again. And during our trips, he would share with me stories of growing up in Sumter, South Carolina, which is sort of like in the center of the state of South Carolina, not that far from Columbia, which is the capital. And so he would share stories of growing up in, in Sumter. And, you know, I would ask my dad, I said, well, dad, is this true? These stories that, I'm, that he's telling, Uncle Ike is telling me because you've never shared these stories with me. And so I'd never heard about them. And some of them seemed to me at the time almost fantastic because I hadn't learned about them hadn't studied them in school, stories where you had individuals who may be caught like teenagers, they may be caught with a white girl and then be literally run out of town. Or you have a situation where someone might have gotten into an argument with someone and then next thing you know, they disappear and no one ever hears from them again. Or a situation where someone got into a fight, and these are all black and white. So, so a young man gets into a fight with a with a white teen. Teen teenagers have fights all the time. The difference is, um, in one of these instances, they're trying to rush to get the young boy, the black boy, out of town. The individual that he had worked for part time said, you know, came to the to young man's mom and said, we need to get him out of town because if not, you know, they're gonna get him. So you hear these stories of people having to leave out of town for just minor indiscretions, things that just happen in life. And my dad finally had to admit after asking, hey, you know, are these stories true? Because I've never heard this before. He said, yeah, they're true. And so that sparked in me a desire to learn and want to know more about what was it like for them growing up in South Carolina. And so for me, it was initially very personal. You know, what was it like for them? Unfortunately, my uncle passed before I had a chance to really interview and do the work I procrastinated you know, and then he ended up passing. But initially I thought of it as a documentary because there were no podcasts at this time. This is in the late 1990s. So that was the, the sort of the seed for being able to get the testimonials about what life was like. So then you fast forward to that class and then I had the opportunity to do that. And so I, I actually had an opportunity to interview a member of the church that I attended about what his life was like growing up in Newberry, South Carolina. And that was when it really clicked like, wow, different part of the state, a little younger than my dad, but his story in terms of what it was like was so similar. And then you read stories at that time. A few more books have been written by, by 2013, 2014, 12. A few more books about Jim Crow era and testimonials about what that life was like had been done. And Duke University has a huge project called Beyond the Veil, where they interviewed over a thousand African-Americans about what it was like growing up in the Jim Crow South. You know, those weren't available before. They're available now. And so to see the some of the similarities, but then also the unique differences based on where they were born and, and sort of what the rules were. So so that's kind of how I got to the to the point where it, it kind of crystallized to try to make this real. So when was the Jim Crow era and what was it? 
So Jim Crow, and we'd have to back up just a little bit. And so when we get to the end of the Civil War, which was in 1865, and so once the Civil War ends, you had a sort of a precursor to Jim Crow, which was the Black Codes, because at the end of the Civil War, um, the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, was passed. Well, in the southern states, slaves were their full economy. They were the engine um, to drive that economy. And so what they did, they began to create black code laws. And these black code laws were ways to sort of keep blacks under control in the South. So that you had all kinds of laws, laws like in Mississippi, where um, you had to have written proof of employment as it began, the, as January approached. And that if you didn't, you could be forced into into contracts that that will take you out through the year um, against your will, or if you left before the end of a work contract, you would forfeit money that you that you had earned earlier in the year. So you had these black codes that really were just trying to get people back on plantations and back in industry to continue to work for the profit of others. So then Reconstruction Act happened, and that helps to squelch what the black codes were trying to do. Because then you had the passage of the 14th Amendment for equal protection under the laws, 15th Amendment for the right to vote, but it didn't last very long. And so the southern states had always fought against the idea of the reconstruct of reconstruction because they did not want to lose power and they wanted to be able to keep those black bodies under their control. So you had the Southern Compromise where the federal government basically withdrew federal troops from the South. And really with the withdrawal, with the withdrawal of federal troops, that pretty much ended the period of Reconstruction. You had black lawmakers, you were having black businesses rise up, some establishment, some of the earlier black colleges. Reconstruction really was the impetus for the public school system as we know as we know it in our country. So it was a great thing. But then, you know, there was that pushback. And so then you get into the point where um, you have it codified that, that Jim Crow is a thing with the Plessy versus Ferguson a Supreme Court case, which is better known as separate but equal, where it was decided by the courts that you can have two different entities or two different um, systems in place as long as they're equal. So one for black folks, one for white folks. So this idea of a redundancy, they said, is, is, is perfectly fine as long as both sides are getting equal. And so, for example, it may be something as simple as waiting rooms in a bus station, which is one of the common ones that we think about. Well, in theory, the black waiting room and the white waiting room should be of equal caliber. But of course they weren't, you know, bathrooms, water fountains, all of those things, those harsh and visible signs that Jim Crow created. You know, you couldn't live in white neighborhoods, you know, public pools in many places did not allow blacks to, to be in the pool. If you had a carnival or a fair, blacks, if it was a two week carnival affair, blacks could only come one day out of the two weeks. And so there was this strict, harsh line. You couldn't go to the same barbershops. Anything that you can think of in restaurants, if they did serve Blacks, if Blacks didn't have to walk up to the side to the, to a takeout window, which is what normally had to happen, or you had to go to the back of the restaurant to pick your food up at the back of the restaurant. If you were allowed inside, some states had laws where there have to be a physical partition between the Black and the white seating area because they felt that whites should not have to look at blacks while they're eating their meal, because looking at a black person eat would ruin their meal. And so you you had these hard and fast laws. You couldn't get loans. You were barred from going to a lot of public, the majority, well, the majority of public colleges um, were also segregated. And if they weren't segregated by law, they were segregated by practice. But in the South, they were segregated by law. 
And so that's when you had the establishment of a lot of historically black colleges and universities. But the problem was there just weren't enough to meet the need or the demand that was pent up for education. So so that was one of the offshoots. I'll give you an example of how deep it went. Even in Atlanta, they went as far as that. They would have different Bibles if you were to go to court as a, as a witness. There would be a white Bible and there would be a black Bible, because even in that regard, they would not basically um, share in the right to be able to swear to tell the truth. So so they were the, the laws were very harsh. So how do you believe the Jim Crow era impacts the lives of black people in America today? I think one of the things is that it's that generational piece that people don't really want to talk about. So in the U.S., when you talk about racism and the impact of racism, people want to say, well, slavery ended. They always say 200 years ago. It doesn't matter when it ended. They always say 200 years ago. And I mean, it ended in 1865. But the fact of the matter is they ignored the Jim Crow era. And so they act as if that didn't happen. And so you have all of these families who have this generational head start in life, because really most colleges, if we're, if we're going to be just really honest, the overwhelming majority of colleges in the South did not really allow African-Americans in, in any significant numbers until the 1980s. And that's really because of sports. And so, but for athletics, because collegiate athletics in the United States is huge, but for athletics, there would still be nominal numbers in most colleges. And if you look at the overwhelming majority of universities, they still have a quota system of some sort that would limit the number of African-Americans that they would allow admission to. And so we, we talk about this idea of equity and fairness in, in the U.S. all the time. But in our system of education, they do have this thing called legacy legacy admissions in, in most colleges, dates, not most, most of the more selective colleges, legacy admissions take up the overwhelming majority of admissions, but they always focus on that two or 3% of African-Americans that they may admit as a reason why the, why affirmative action is not fair. And so you, you always have this dynamic of equity and fairness and then generational issues as well. And so one of the legacies that often isn't talked about are the social norms. And so Jim Crow created these social etiquettes um, or, or, or racial racial etiquette that in a lot of ways, it still seeps into how this country functions and operates. And so I'll give you an example of some of them. So, for example, some of the ones that we think about, OK, blacks and whites were not supposed to eat together during Jim Crow. Blacks were not allowed to show public affection towards one another in public. When blacks, when they, whenever someone was being introduced, a black person was not allowed to introduce a white person, but a white person could introduce a black person because it went to status and power. Who was the person that was in control? Whites would never refer to a black person by their title. So Mr., Miss, Mrs., Doctor, they would never. Even they would call them by their first name or they would say they would call you auntie or they would call you uncle, but they would never they would never give you the respect of referring to you by your title. Uh, whereas a po on the flip side, an African-American was expected to refer to a child. Once that child, white child, once that white, white child reached the age of about 12 or 13, they then had to refer to that child as Mr. Bob. Like they then had to acknowledge that person as an adult. And so some, those were some of the ways. And then you also had some that I think, to be honest, do live right now, which is that, um, you can never um, assert that a person, a white person is telling a lie or you can never impute dishonorable intentions to a white person. You can't question them. 
you can't suggest that they're inferior or of an inferior class or of an inferior status. Um, you can't put yourself out as being overly intelligent or more intelligent than a white person. Um, you can't laugh derisively at a white person or mockingly. And you're never were expected to comment on the appearance of a white female. And it's funny, all of those, those from the second half, they came from Stetson Kennedy's book, Jim Crow Guy, which he wrote, I think he wrote that in the, in the fifties. Those last ones are pretty much the crux of white supremacy in America today. I mean, they still stand. You still can have issues if uh, you comment on a white woman, you know, like in, in your, in, in social setting, you know, people may look at you sideways if you are with a white, you know, or if you show that you only date white, like people, it's, it's not interracial dating. They can show as many commercials as they want. It's still not seen as something that is as desired as one would think, but more so as accepted, I believe, as one would think. And the superiority is still there, which is why African Americans in corporate and business settings always catch so much flack because they are trying to operate outside the norms. They're trying to show how intelligent they are. You're not supposed to be more intelligent than the white person. You're trying to show that you're confident. You can't show yourself to be more confident than your, your, your supervisor, your employer, your colleague. You should just be happy to have the job. And that's the mentality that white supremacy has sort of brought with it over from Jim Crow. So what do you think of the role played past and present by the Black Lives Matter movement? I would say the Black Lives Matter movement has helped to codify in many ways what modern people of color feel. And it has energized and given voice to what we're seeing happening, which is almost a remembering in many ways of what's happened in the past. I think in that regard, Black Lives Matter has been pivotal in changing the direction that this country was already heading in, but it named it. It didn't allow it to hide anymore. And I think it really helped a lot of people who, in their persistence, realize you can't hide from them and you have to pick a side. And I think in the past, people were very willing to pick a side, to to not pick a side, but to just kind of roll in the middle. But Black Lives Matter said, we're going to stay, we're going to show up. Any type of injustice, any type of racial oppression, we're going to call it out. And we're going to show you that we're going to call it out. And no, we're not going to stop. And so it's raised a whole, I would, at this point, probably I would say two generations of social justice advocates, of, of individuals who are willing to speak out more freely about what they're seeing and what they're experiencing in terms of racism, um, in terms of classism, in terms of sexism. And I think that that's really critical because prior to them, there had been a gap. We certainly were more concerned with how do we continue to come up to, to reach some socioeconomic parity as opposed to really having to fight as hard against the issues that relate to social justice. But we be foolish to not think that the advent of the cell phone camera and then police wearing body cameras have also helped us in this movement. Because right now, the reality is most people who know realize this stuff is not new. The difference is it's now on videotape. And, and so I think that has helped the Black Lives Matter movement gain steam and momentum so that it took the issue and it pressed forward with the killing of Trayvon Martin. And then that met with the advent of the cell phone camera, which then met with the explosion of social media, which led to the body cams on police officers. So they all have worked together to get us to this point. Well, I think it's encouraging that many races are involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, looking at the protests, 
is a wide range of people protesting worldwide, which I think is a good thing. Now, since the George Floyd murder, which was May 25th, 2020, there have been at least 181 black people killed by the police in the US. Why do you believe the figure is so high? I do believe that there has been an immediate backlash because law enforcement officers have been convinced that they're at war with the people. We also know, and FBI has said this for years, that one of the biggest threats to this country is homegrown white supremacy. And we know that there is a presence of white supremacists within law enforcement. And so the inability to sort of address those two things is definitely helped see where we are. And so there is this culture of you can't attack law enforcement. And what that means is you can't hold them accountable. That's really what it has. It's, it's devolved into that of anything you say against law enforcement, you're, you're somehow against America. And so there's been this tweaking of uh, propaganda around law enforcement. And then what they've done is they've elevated first responders even before COVID. They were elevating um, the status of first responders because they were trying to weaponize this idea of the really, if you were looking at it economically, blue collar civil servants, but in a particular sector. And so they wanted all of them to sort of band together, whether it's fire, police, EMS, emergency medical services, all of them sort of coupled together in this blue collar culture, you know, where they, they can do no wrong. But really, the, the goal was to protect law enforcement from being able to do whatever they want to do and then just say, it's OK, it's justified and that there's no problem with it. And unfortunately, people have gone for it. They ride around with the flag, the American flag with the blue line. It's, it's black. And then one of the lines, one of the stripes is a blue line, which shows that you support law enforcement. But reality is they don't really support law enforcement because they don't most of them don't get paid much. They support their right to kill black people and to not be held accountable. To me, really, that's what the flag is saying, because they don't really support the fact that most law enforcement officers are not paid well unless you're in a really big city and you have a union. Most of them have to make overtime to make a living. Um, a lot of them have PTSD and have to deal with um, mental health issues because of the stress, because there's a stress impact with their job. Some have deal with, with domestic violence and have issues with, with domestic violence. And so all of these factors, you know, play, play in. But the reality is the care is not really of the person in the in the uniform. It's in the idea that they should be able to police black and brown people however they see fit. Well, talking about the police in America, I understand the police over there enjoy something called qualified immunity. What is that and how does it protect officers? The quick and dirty answer is that it's a way in which law enforcement officials and really government officials, um, civil and certain civil service, civil service sectors are immune from civil litigation. And so the idea is that in theory, they, they weren't supposed to, and even it's based on a, it's based on a Supreme Court decision that's supposed to be based on this federal statute. The federal statute, however, does not ever say in a section 1983, it never actually says that the person should be held to not be able to be sued. But over time, it has sort of morphed into this into this level of holding that says, basically, unless one, you can show that the person violates a clearly established law and that they also violated someone else's rights. And at some point, there was an issue of whether it was done in terms of um, whether they knew it was lawful, 
And then there was also an issue sometimes of their intent. And so you have all of these, you have all of these factors that are supposed to play a role. And so the idea is that it is supposed to be where if you are violating a law, one, if you're violating someone's civil rights and that you're doing it based on clearly established law, you should not be able to trigger it. What they have done, the courts have done is they've said, but then it also has to be based on an identical set of facts in the previous case. So that's like the, the caveat that they put out. But the problem is, how can you reach the point where the person knows that they have violated a clearly established law if you never even try cases of police officers? So it's like it'll never reach the standard for it to be overturned. So they always say, well, we, there's not a case that has these facts. And so we can't overturn uh, qualified immunity. Well, if you never even indict a police officer to get to the point where they can get to trial, where you can get to the point where there is a verdict, you'll never have enough cases where it would actually show similar facts. So it's a fallacy, really. It, it has evolved into them just basically realizing if I do something wrong, nothing is going to happen to anything that I own. I'll probably, at worst, get a slap on the wrist. If I have to resign, I'll resign and won't get fired. So I won't lose my certification or any of my papers. I can go to another jurisdiction and they'll hire me as a police officer with no problem. And that's really what what it has become at this point, where they just know they can game the system. So what was the difference then in the case of Derek Chauvin and the murder of George Floyd and the verdict? How did that come about then? The only reason why that case, I believe, was because of the egregious nature of it by, by Chauvin. It was a nine minutes and, and 29 seconds where you're kneeling on another man's neck. You can't say in any way, shape or form. There was no wiggle room for them to get around, I believe, what they usually do, which is that he feared or she feared for their lives. It was a split second call, a split second decision. And so that's why they ended up blah, 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 blah. And then what they would generally do, if the facts don't fall in their favor, they'll tend to, which is just their, it's just their strategy. It's consistent in the States. If the police officer was wrong and they know that they were wrong, then they try to win in the court of public opinion so that they can sway people who might be on the grand jury to ensure that the person is not indicted. But in Derek Chauvin's case, they couldn't do it. I mean, it's nine minutes and 30 seconds. So clearly Floyd was not a threat. Floyd had already been subdued. Floyd could have been taken in at any time. But he stayed there with his knee on this man's neck until until he killed him. And so I think that that was really in the fact that it was videotaped, because if you saw the initial report that they came up with when they went back to the police station, I believe the phraseology they used was man dies after medical incident during police altercation. That's how it was initially written up on their police report. And so, yeah, that's a big difference between kneeling on someone's neck for nine minutes and 30 seconds. But that was how they were going to write it up. And that's how they always get over Oh, that's very interesting, Elliot. So how can people contact you? Well, they can reach me uh, through our website, creativetension.org. Just go to the contact page. Uh, what we do now, our podcast has been on, on hiatus for a little bit, but you can listen to back episodes anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. And then we also, what we do is um, right now we're doing a lot of trainings. We do implicit bias trainings. We do trainings with schools. I'm um, dealing with the issue of racism. One of the programs that we have now um, is a program entitled 10 myths whites have about racism. And what we do is we go through that um, one myth at a time, kind of teasing out for the group in a small cohort. And we go through that cohort and we just go over those myths. We have videos and that kind of help to illuminate. And then we just have conversations about those myths. And 
So that's one of the things that we're doing right now. But if they visit creativetension.org, they can contact me that way and we can discuss maybe bringing that uh, program um, to your school, to your job, community center, or however else you would like to have that brought in. Elia in Atlanta, Georgia, USA. Thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening. Please like, subscribe, and share another In Conversation podcast coming soon.